himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What good is it, my brothers, if someone asks, he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not as Rahab, the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Thanks to all of you who came out to the block party on Friday and who volunteered. It was a blast, wasn't it? So thanks for all your help with that, and we had a great time. It's good to be with you here this morning. One afternoon, probably close to two years ago now, I was putting some weights away after gym class. Yeah, that got some laughs the first time, too. They're like, you're already talking about the gym. Okay, good. Well, one of the guys I was working out with in the gym came up to me and struck up a conversation with me. I was still like breathing hard after the class. And this guy is a doctor. He's an intelligent guy. He liked to think critically about things. He was also really kind. He was an accepting guy involved in his local community. And he knew I was a pastor. And for some reason, that was the afternoon he decided he wanted to enter into a conversation about faith. So we're putting away our weights, like breathing heavy, and he's, you know, asking questions, we're dialoguing. And you know, walking into those moments, I never know how those are going to go, how they're going to end up turning out. But this one was a really lovely conversation. And he wasn't critical about Christianity all that much. Like, he, he had a critical eye, but his concern was a pragmatic one. 
he couldn't really get over the question, what difference would it really make if I was a Christian? He talked about what he had seen in the church, and what he had seen looked like political partisanship, a lack of concern towards the marginalized, and to what he felt like was just this void without love. He got this sense that people were unaccepted if they were different. And what's interesting about my conversation with this guy is he already had concern for those people who society largely rejects. He volunteered in his spare time helping people who weren't as fortunate as him. He was trying to love his neighbor and be an advocate for them. He was a servant of his community through some local boards. And so when it came to Christianity, he wondered, what difference would it really make if I was a Christian? He felt like it would just make him more spiritual and more detached from the world around him. Like that he would begin to concern himself with spiritual things and that those things wouldn't actually galvanize him in his love and his concern for others. Ultimately, he thought faith doesn't really work. It won't really change me and it won't really change what I do. And here's the question. Is he right? Is what we do on Sunday morning and what we believe in, is it not really all that related to what we do on Monday? Does where we put our faith really make a difference in what we do? And as I dug into our scripture passage today, I thought this would be the passage this doctor I had this conversation with at my former gym. This is the passage he would probably like to preach to Christians. Why? Because he would want us to know that our faith really should make a difference in what we do on Monday. And last week, we started a new series in the book of James called Real Faith. And last week, we even read aloud the whole book. And James's overarching question in this letter was this. What good is it if someone claims to have faith, but you would never know it from watching them? What good is it if someone claims to believe in God, but you would never know that by the way that they live their lives. According to James, that kind of faith, that's incomplete. And actually worse, it's dead. And if there's one thing I think James, the author of the letter and the brother of Jesus, wants you to grab hold of from today, it's this. Real faith works. Real faith, it works. If we have real faith, then what we sing about, what we talk about, what we come to church to be encouraged in on Sunday, it will always impact our lives on Monday. Real faith is holistic. It will always manifest itself into works. And as good Protestants, we like to say sola fide. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. By faith alone. That's what that means. We're saved by faith alone. And that's true. Praise God that we're saved by faith alone through what Jesus did on the cross and not through our own works. But works, which is this other word for obedience, works is not a bad word for James. James tells us in our passage that we might be saved by faith alone, but real faith is not faith that stands alone. And what I mean by that is that real faith never just ends with just faith. It never ends with intellectual assent. Real faith is about holistic obedience. It's about whole life discipleship. Real faith, it works. And we're going to see that real faith, it works in three different ways. 
James uses three metaphors to help us understand how real faith works. And before we get into that, I just want to give you a quick, quick refresher about who James is really writing to here. James is writing to a group of scattered Christians throughout what's called the Jewish diaspora, which is just this fancy way of saying that they're all over the Jewish empire. And at one point, all of these Christians were actually in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, James was their pastor. And because of persecution, they became refugees and they had to scatter across the Roman Empire and form these little communities. And so James, he didn't have Skype at the time, of course, so he had to write a letter to them, right? He wanted to continue to pastor them. And so he wrote them this letter. And as we make our way through what James wrote in our passage this morning, instead of walking through it forwards like we usually would, I want to walk through it backwards. Look with me at the last verse, the final verse in our passage this morning. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here's the first thing that James wants us to understand about how real faith works. He like culminates his argument in this. Real faith works like your living body. What James is trying to say here is that there is a direct relationship between faith and what we do. He's reminding us, hey, If you have real faith, genuine faith, it will reveal itself. Look again at the verse. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. The word spirit there is like breath. So James is saying your body needs to breathe in order to live. I don't know if any of you have been through CPR training, but what's one of the first things that you do in CPR training? After you tell someone to call 911 and the other person to get an AED, right? Well, you check to see if the person is responsive, and you check to see if they're breathing. Why? Because if they're not breathing, it's a dead body, and you could do CPR to try to resuscitate them. A body without breath, without spirit, is the word that James uses, is a dead body. James is saying that a body needs to breathe in order to animate it so that it can do things. In the same way, faith is animated by works. Faith without works is a dead faith, just like body without breath is a dead body. So real faith, it works like your living body. And you know, some of us feel the tension in the faith versus works debate. And maybe some of you didn't realize that there was a debate in this arena. There is, and it has been going for quite some time. There's a debate because people perceive there to be a disagreement between what James says here and what Paul says elsewhere in Scripture. I'll explain. Let me read a verse for you from our passage. It's chapter 2, verse 24. James says this, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now let me show you what Paul writes in Romans. He says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So when you put them side by side there on that slide, You can see that when we pair these verses up and we place them next to one another, we feel some friction, don't we? There feels like there's a contradiction there. People will point to these two verses and they'll say, see, there's a problem with the Bible. Paul and James, they disagree with one another. And this is why we had our How to Read Your Bible seminar a few weeks ago. We want to be able to read our Bibles well. Why? Not to just be able to explain things away really quickly but so that we can really understand our Bibles, dig deeply into them, and trust them. 
If you put these verses into context, then you'll see there's no contradiction between what Paul and James are saying. When we look at what's being said around these verses, then the friction seems to rub itself away. James is trying to tell us what we've been talking about thus far this morning. Faith without works is a dead faith. And he explains that by saying works are this animating force of faith. James draws this strong connection between the two. And if we put Paul's words into context also, Paul is talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking about circumcision. He's trying to instruct the church in Rome that there's no difference in Christ Jesus between Jew and between Gentile, and that one doesn't have to follow the Mosaic law in order to receive salvation. In significant ways, Paul is having a different discussion with a different group of believers within a different context, and because of that, he's defining his terms differently to speak to that audience. If we read all of Paul's letters and we study Paul's words, he says the same thing as James. He might use different words, but he says the same thing. Look at what he says in Galatians 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The argument that James disagrees with Paul, it's this red herring. It's misleading. Both Paul and James draw a close line between faith and works. They're tied together. We're saved by faith alone. But if that faith is real, if it's genuine, then works or obedience or call it whatever you want, it goes hand in hand with faith. Now stay with me here because we're not done. James uses two very different Old Testament people to support his point that real faith is connected to obedience. He mentions Abraham and Rahab, these two characters from deep in the Old Testament. Both of these people are far from perfect people. Abraham, even though he was this forefather of the faith, right, he made so many mistakes, and those are like well recorded in Genesis. James is saying, listen up. Didn't Abraham's faith express itself in obedience when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Isn't this actually a shocking picture of Abraham's obedience? Of course, Abraham was not always obedient, and that's well recorded, but there were moments of great obedience, and that led him to be called what James says is a friend of God. And then Rahab, and Rahab always seems to pop up at significant moments in our Bible. So she's in this iconic hall of faith in Hebrews 11. She's even listed in the beginning of Matthew's gospel and the genealogy of Jesus. So Rahab was probably, she probably had no like great theological understanding about Yahweh. She was a new believer. She wasn't a Jew, but she demonstrated her obedience to Yahweh in her action of hospitality. She kept Israelites safe and pushed them on their way. It's almost like James is saying this. Look at the two ends of this spectrum. Look at this forefather of the Jews, and then look at this woman who was a new believer and not a Jew. Look at the difference between them. These people are at opposite poles of the spectrum when we think of people. They're very different people in key ways, but both of them are great examples of obedience. They obeyed God. And James underscores his point in verse 17 through verse 19. Look with me there. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So James is having this conversation with someone that he's just kind of made up, right? And he's saying, I will show you my faith by my works. Real faith works like a living body. As breath animates our bodies, works then animate our faith. And some of you might be wondering, Ben, okay, you keep talking about obedience. You're beating a dead horse on that. Thank you. One of my favorite phrases is sometimes a dead horse needs to be beaten. But what does it actually look like to be obedient to Jesus? How do, I, how do I actually live into obedience? And my answer to that question is actually the second point. Real faith works like a real friend. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Imagine a scenario with me for a moment. We just started up community group, this recent community group session. So a lot of you are in community groups, and just think with me for a moment. You're sitting with your community group on like a Tuesday night or whatever it is, and what if someone showed up to your community group and they had really ratty clothes? They smelled bad. By all appearances, this person was struggling to provide for themselves, and it seemed like they maybe are living on the street or something, and maybe they're making really, it's clear they're making really bad decisions to kind of put them in that place. What if by the end of your meeting, as you're wrapping up and you're taking prayer requests as everyone you know, heads out on their week, you pray for this person, you ask what they need prayer for, but then you haven't addressed or even talked about any of the real needs this person is clearly displaying. New clothes, maybe some food, maybe even housing. But at the end of your meeting, you pray for them and you offer them some advice or some encouragement, and then you just you know, send them on their way, hoping they can figure it out. James says this way, if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Here's a question. Is that being a real friend? In Jesus' words, is that loving your neighbor as yourself? Well, of course not. No, all that was done in that community group was just a lot of spiritual speak. As Christians, sometimes we can say a lot of good spiritual things. We can be obsessed with knowing the right answers. We could even have our own spiritual agendas at times. But if we aren't loving those around us in practical, tangible, often self-sacrificial ways, then James would say to us, we need to examine our faith. Real faith, genuine faith, it does more than just say spiritual things in prayers. It does more than just saying we believe in God. Real faith, it looks like a real friend. James says it again in another way in chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So real faith is both this obedience to God within our inner person 
in our thoughts and in our independent actions. But it's also about having a particular concern for those of us who are around us who have needs. And then having mercy, showing mercy, and taking it upon ourselves to serve them and care for them. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you know I have an obsession with this guy, he said this, only the obedient believe. If we are to believe, we must obey a concrete command. Only the obedient believe. Well, what's the most concrete command that one could pull from the Bible? Love thy neighbor as yourself. There you go, Charlie, you're on it. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' whole point in saying this is that if we love God and we don't love others, then our feet are firmly planted in thin air. Our love for our neighbor makes our faith concrete. What James says in our passage is totally in line with Jesus' teaching. And maybe you're still wondering, why? Why does obedience to God look like a real friend? Why is it like defined in that way? Why is this what obedience looks like? Well, see, Jesus would never ask us to do anything that he didn't do himself. You see, God desires obedience out of a desire that we would experience what is at the center of his heart. Central to who God is, and I'm talking about his very heart, is a heart of mercy. You want to know what God looks like? He looks like mercy. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says this, be merciful just as your father is merciful. So you know what's found at the very center of God's heart? It's not candy. It's better than that. It's mercy. And what God so desperately desires is that we would experience and share in that mercy. So in order to show us mercy, what did God do? He extended his hand to us in the person of Jesus. And he said, let me send my own son who will show you the way to my heart. And once you've experienced that and partaken of my heart of mercy, then please go share that with others. That's what Jesus really asks of us. Jesus lent us a hand of mercy. And so just out of an, ex out of an extension of taking his hand, we then open up our own physical hand and we extend those, those hands of mercy to those who, of us who are in need. Real faith looks like a real friend. And Jesus is a real friend. He is your real friend. He is our model. He is always there to listen. He is always willing to get in the trenches with you, those places of struggle and even those places of your sin. His heart of mercy is most drawn to those places in your life that are difficult because that's who he is. The very core of who he is is mercy. So who will you seek to show mercy to this week? Who will you extend a hand to this week? Who will you be a friend to this week? James tells us that real faith it works like a real friend. And real faith also works like your living body. And then he tells us that real faith works by seeing Jesus in the mirror. This is my last point. Look with me at James 1, 22 through 25. James says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James is comparing two different people here. It's a little bit different than Abraham and Rahab, but he mentions two different people before, and now he's, he's mentioning two different people here. A person who hears the word, and then a person who obeys the word. He's comparing these two. And for the person who only hears the word, there's this like superficiality to it. Think of it when you're walking past a mirror and you're like in a hallway or something like that and you just get a glimpse of yourself in the mirror and you like straighten up your hair and it's like nothing is like permanent there, right? There's no permanence. You like move fast, you move on. You have to, you're gonna have to do it again at some point. There's no real lasting impact there. But for the person who does the word though, who obeys the word, their circumstance is different. The person who does the word is like someone staring at a mirror intently. And who do they see looking back at them as they like peer into the mirror? James says the person who is the doer of the word, instead of seeing themselves, they see Jesus in the mirror. How could this be? Because they look like him. They act like him. They are, they are like him. Jesus' reflection is what is shown to them in the mirror. James is just reminding us that the gospel, it changes us. It changes us from the inside out. When Jesus gives us his spirit, he writes the law on our hearts, and the spirit leads us, it guides us, it convicts us, and it encourages us, and he transforms us into the image of Jesus. James, is even give, James even gives us some markers in our passage to help us know what it looks like to follow Jesus and to walk in step with his spirit. He tells us in verse 19, being slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. He mentions our speech again, talking about the tongue in verse 26. So there's something about the way that we use our words that directly shows our lives are being transformed by Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, what I find most encouraging about this passage. Most encouraging to me is what James says in verse 25. James says this, those who look into the perfect law, and what he means by that is the gospel. Those who look into the gospel and persevere in it, those people will be blessed. That word persevere clues me into the fact that James understands we aren't immediately transformed into the image of Jesus. It's not like we place our faith in Jesus and then, boom, we're just like him. We're just exactly like him. No, that's not practically how the Spirit works. Our transformation into Jesus' image takes time. It's not a one-stop shop and then you're done. Jesus changes us over our lifetime. But if we are persevering in the gospel if we're persevering in our obedience, then we will still see Jesus perfectly reflected back to us in the mirror. Why? How? Because his grace is big enough to handle our imperfection. Jesus already sees us in the righteousness and holiness that he is and he embodies. So if you're a new Christian, then guess what? You are saved by faith alone, praise God. And when you look into the mirror, you can see Jesus because he sees you as himself. 
soaked in righteousness and holiness. And if you've been a Christian for some time, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 20 plus years, you know what? Jesus sees you as himself, clothed in his own righteousness. And you know, I feel like I say this often when I'm up here, but one of like the great privileges of my gig as a pastor is that I get to meet with people and hear about what God's doing in their lives. I get to meet with people inside our faith community here and people that are outside our faith community. And I was reminded this week that many people, we feel like we're the ones who Brennan Manning calls ragamuffins. And this is like a quirky word. Ragamuffins is this term that means like we're all just trying to like stumble along and get it right. Brennan Manning says ragamuffins are the ones who feel like when it comes to following Jesus, it feels like our cheese is falling off our cracker. That's how he puts it. Yeah, Charlie, you like that one. Another theologian gets at this same feeling, but he says it differently. He says that many people who have been following Jesus for some time, they carry with them a secret burden. And the secret burden is this. We aren't as mature as we think we should be. We feel like maybe, maybe I should be further along. And God has progressively gotten disappointed with us. We ask ourselves, how is it that I know so much and I still sin? When have, why have I been on this journey for so long and as I go throughout my life, I still have patterns and struggles that I wrestle with so deeply? Well, being transformed into the image of Jesus, it's not immediate. Jesus wants to do something better. He wants to take us on a journey with him where over time we have to learn that he is worth placing our trust in, that he, what he has is better than what other things have to offer. And sometimes our heart isn't the most malleable of all places, is it? But you know what the Apostle Paul says? He says this after hearing from Jesus. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My power is made perfect in your weakness. What does that mean? It means that those areas of our heart that feel most incomplete, not finished, very messy, there's actually a power strong enough to transform it. That power is the spirit of God and he asks us to go on a journey with him into our hearts to transform them. So for those of you struggling with some pieces of your heart, parts of your heart, perhaps those are things that bring you shame, maybe not, but let me encourage you, Jesus does not hide from those places. He says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. So if you want to enter more deeply into the work of the Spirit and what he's doing in your life, then let me encourage you to pray the words from Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God wants to take you on a journey of transformation. Will you go with him? 
So as we close our time together, as we do it, let me remind you that James, I'll just remind you of where we came. Jesus, or G- James says that we have real faith that works. Real faith works. Real faith looks like this living body. It looks like your living body. It's an active faith. It's animated by our works, like our breath animates our bodies. And real faith takes the form of a real friend, a real friend like Jesus who shows mercy to those in need and who loves our neighbor like ourselves. But last but not least, real faith works by seeing Jesus in the mirror. Jesus reminds us that God himself, through his spirit, is at work within us. He is shaping us and molding us, and our job is just to persevere in the gospel. And I want to end with just a prayer. And it's a very common prayer that the church has prayed for centuries. And as I speak it over us and over you, I hope that you'll join your heart to it. Would you pray with me, please? Most merciful God, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And God, we are so grateful for your ever-ending mercy, your never-ending mercy, that you never take away your hand from us, that it is always there open for us to take hold of it. Lord, give us the courage to take hold of that hand every day and give us the courage to extend our own hands to others out of the mercy that we have received from you. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. Father, it's in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.